in life echoes in eternity. Welcome to Is It Really, the podcast that challenges popular opinions about movies. I'm Zach Smith Michaels. I'm Mitch Dupree. Brandon? My name is Gladiator, and tonight we're entering the Coliseum and asking, are you not entertained? Zach, why don't you give us the plot of Gladiator? Set in ancient Rome, a once powerful general is forced to become a common gladiator. The emperor's son, who is unable to walk the line, is enraged when he is passed over as heir in favor of his father's favorite general. He kills his father and arranges the murder of the general's family. The general is sold into slavery and trained as a gladiator. But his subsequent popularity in the arena threatens the master's throne. So gladiator is of the sword and sandal genre. Uh, Why are these films so intriguing? I would like to talk about two other films. One of them is Ben-Hur, and while it is a sword and sandal film, Ben-Hur is also a biblical epic revenge film with really good characters. So I think that what makes the sword and sandal genre popular is that the storylines are a little basic, for lack of a better term, like a lot of them are kind of revenge movies or something like that, but usually they have good characters or it's not just a sword and sandal film. It's like Gladiator kind of tries to be a political thriller And like I said, Ben-Hur is also a biblical film. So I think when they have more going on than just the sword and sandal element, that's when they're best. And then on the other hand, you have 300, which appeals to cool guys. And it's like electric (laughs) guitars and matrix shots, but it's in the sword and sandal genre. Real quick, you're talking about Ben-Hur 2016, right? No, no. No way. The better of the two. You shut your mouth right now. 2016. Ben-Hur is like one of my favorite movies. 2016 has Morgan Freeman in it. Zach, you're hurting Brandon's feelings. (laughs) I'm going to leave. This is the movie that me and my wife saw the night before my wife gave birth to our first child. Oh, no. This was literally our last supper, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) Our last supper. The Ben-Hur remake. I'm not going to say it's the worst thing I've ever seen. I left the theater wanting to hate it more than I did, but I was just like, I saw a much better version of this when Gladiator lovingly ripped off Ben-Hur. That's how I feel about every sword and sandal film that's come out in the last like 15 years since they're all Ben-Hur. They're all Ben-Hur. They're all Gladiator and they're all bad. None of them are good. No, you're you're absolutely right. I also feel like I have a hard time, first of all, putting boundaries on the the sword and sandal genre. Sure. Um, Just a little bit like I think it would bleed over a little bit into like the medieval style film. Just if we're like talking about the Crusades, ancient Rome, a couple of those things. They feel similar, like two that came to mind right away were like King Arthur and Robin Hood. And this is kind of where the lines get blurry for me. They're clearly more like medieval, but, you know, Robin Hood fought in the Crusades. He fought, you know, with King Richard, King Arthur, ancient Rome. Right. Obviously, I know like sword and sandal, that's speaking like biblical epic. Like that's easy to pinpoint a couple of these others. I think like the inclusion of ancient Rome, I think that is where the lines get a little blurred for me. You know, I feel you because like at the beginning of Gladiator, they're in Germania. Right. And, you know, you don't see any sand. And that's when I think sword and sandal, (laughs) I think sandals and sand. It's that simple. Like, are they in a coliseum? Are they riding a camel? Well, the yeah. 1960s classic Barabbas with Anthony Quinn that everybody in the world has seen starts out the first two acts aren't anywhere near a coliseum, and the literal third act is he becomes a gladiator. Also, Brandon, it's interesting that you brought up King Arthur and Robin Hood because those are two movies that existed before Gladiator. 
But then after Gladiator, Clive Owen and the King Arthur with Robin Hood are very blatant ripoffs. Well, I mean, Ridley Scott, he made mm-hmm. Kingdom of Heaven, the one that's the Crusades, yeah, essentially. Bad. Yeah, it's bad. It's not good. So I hear cool. the director's cut is better, but yeah, it's the Crusades. I mean, to me, that's like Robin Hood. It's very similar. It's all like God and glory. And and then Exodus, Gods and Kings. Yeah, he's doing the same thing. And he did a Robin Hood with Russell Mm -hmm. Crowe. And it's awful. So he's obviously trying to get that magic back. They tried for years to do a sequel to Gladiator with Ridley Scott. And, you know, like I was saying earlier, do you guys remember when 300 came out and everybody was Mm -hmm. like losing their minds because they thought it was the greatest movie ever? No one saw the second one. That's why we gave Zack Snyder the keys to the kingdom exactly yeah <laughs> oh man yeah i have mixed feelings about that first 300 first of all i wasn't used to like that Zack snyder graphic novel feel right. and it really caught me off guard i was expecting more of a straight up and down battle movie like just right. like a war epic and it's not that it's also the inclusion of the stylized blood and guts. The violence is, you know, very choreographed in certain areas. And don't get me wrong, there are some awesome fight scenes in 300. But it just is a little off kilter for me, I think. Again, I remember when it came out, people were saying it's like one of the greatest movies ever made. But a very specific kind of guy. Favorite drink? Code Red. My favorite poster? Bikini Girl. Favorite right. movie? 300. Those are the kind of people that I was around when I was a kid. But I think the thing with 300 has is that it's not boring. A a lot of these films, when they try to get into the politics or they try to get into more than just the action, they can get a little sleepy. Whereas 300 never develops the characters or tells a story. It's just action for like two hours. So, well, those are the two ends of the spectrum, and I don't want to insult you because no one loves biblical epics more than Zach Smith Michaels. But biblical epics to me tend to be incredibly sleepy. They're just giant, overlong movies. Like, are you ready to sit here for four and a half hours and watch Moses wander in a desert? Yes, Uh, I am. You know, there's (laughs) eight of those movies, by the way, that came out in the 60s. There's tons of them. That's the one end. And then the other is like the Clash of the Titans kind of end of the spectrum where it is about like cool guys killing monsters. They're very tough and masculine. And Gladiator's uh, right in the middle. Yeah, it does both. It's mm-hmm. definitely macho and masculine with capital M's, but it's also a sleepy historical movie as well. So <laughs> There's room in my heart for both. Right, absolutely. We're fascinated with our cultural and political origins. And some of these movies, they're like time machines. And especially, this is an example of CGI actually showing me something that I can physically not see anymore. And it is filling in a gap. And it really gives us a sense of history in a cool way. Yeah. Yeah, you're obviously referring to the Colosseum and... Yeah, the Colosseum and and the hordes of people, Commodus' coronation and... Just things that you could not witness in real life. So, You ask me what I want. I too want to stand in front of the emperor. As you did. Then listen to me. Learn from me. I wasn't the best because I killed quickly. I was the best because the crowd loved me. Win the crowd, and you'll win your freedom. I will win the crowd. 
I will give them something they've never seen before. I love the passion that Proximo uses when he's talking about his days as a gladiator, right. and his days in the Coliseum. These contests are trivial to Maximus. He does these out of necessity. He's a good warrior, right. you know, but they're not hard for him. They're not any challenge. And then he hears Proximo talk about his days as a gladiator and he starts hatching that plan. You know, you can see the wheels spinning and he starts imagining being face to face with Commodus again. This is clearly birthed out of a desire to seek revenge. And right. he has to keep his plan from Proximo because this is such a, a sacred thing to him, returning to the Colosseum. This is clearly special and this is clearly just a means to an end for Maximus. Right. right. I love when he says, I'm required to kill, so I kill. I don't take any mm -hmm. pleasure in what I'm doing. But everybody gets him one step closer to Commodus. He has no desire to be a showman, I think, is the key. When he yells, are you not entertained? It almost feels like he has contempt and hatred for the audience. Like, hey, this is what real violence looks like. He's so mad at the world and life and, and at Rome, too. So this is kind of, I think, the moment where he sees, oh, the emperor is doing these propaganda games to get everybody excited about Rome. Like, OK, this is going to be perfect for me to, like, expose him. Mm -hmm. Right. I think Commodus and even Gracchus, they both see spectacle as this way to secure control, to secure power. And it's interesting to me because the movie seems to treat the power of spectacle with some reverence. In this scene, we're seeing a different side of Proxima, where initially he's shown to be someone who'd call himself maybe an entertainer. He's a guy who's motivated by money and, and in the interest of giving the people what they want, this awe and spectacle. Maximus is a character who, like you said, he despises those things. He's disgusted by those things. But Proximo shows, well, there is something magnificent about it as well. When you're in the Colosseum, the size, the scope power, the magnificence, and you have control over it all. It's almost like he's hypnotized or drunk on it and he misses it. Right. Romanticizing and, it, to be sure. Yeah, yeah. There's a scene in the director's cut that didn't make it into the movie that I used to think was really stupid, where a slave is being set free in one shot. And he's just like, no, please, please. Like the slave is begging, like, no, please, I, I don't want to be free. No, 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 no. And they just like kick him out which I always thought was weird. But now I'm like, oh, that's kind of a metaphor for what Proximo's life was. Like he genuinely loved being a gladiator and he loved the fame and the power. You know, his whole life has been about chasing that high, which is interesting because that's almost a parallel for Commodus. Like this is a movie about people who are looking for power with the exception of our lead character, who just wants to go home, who doesn't want power, who, you know, says earlier in the film, you know, when they say, would you be the emperor? He goes, with all my heart, no. I, I just want to go home to my family. That's what I want. I, I want to be in my gardens. You know, you see all these other people are just so hungry for power in a way that Maximus is not. But I would definitely contrast the two. Where yes. Commodus, yes. he seeks the approval of the crowd for power, and Proximo, what he receives is admiration. Yes. And those are different yes. things. He's almost like a, an equivalent of a modern day artist in some ways. Right. Like I think of like Bo Burnham's, the thrust behind a lot of his art is like urging people not to live for the approval of an audience. And he's someone who would rail against a character like Proximo, who right. relishes the love of the crowd. Uh, but yeah, for communists, it's it's a much more political power kind of cynical thing. 
So when this movie was released, the genre was basically dead, yet this movie did very well and won Best Picture. Why do you think that happened? I feel like Ridley Scott took something that intrigues us and made it cool. You cannot say that Maximus is not a cool character. And I think specifically about the scene shortly after he got arrested, taken into custody, they're getting ready to execute him, and he pulls a quick one on the soldier. Sometimes it makes the blade stick. Well, and so the next half minute after he headbutts the guy who was going to kill him Mm -hmm. is like a very skilled and confident, like it's a very cool scene. Like he takes the rest of the soldiers down. It's very cool to watch. And I really liken it to Bourne Identity, Jason Bourne sleeping in the park. And this is like the first time he realizes he can fight. And the two cops come up to him. They wake him up. They ask for his papers and he takes them out like super quick. It's just like a really cool scene. I love what that scene does for this movie. It turns this genre into like, okay, this is a cool character, someone we can really get behind here. When you said the minute and a half, I thought you were talking about after that scene. This film also has genuine emotion. Like we never meet his wife or son. We never really do. But when he shows up at his home and we just see their feet dangling and he starts crying, I mean... Mm -hmm that might be the best acting that Russell Crowe has ever done. Well, yeah, I think it hits every quadrant. It hits every genre. Uh, As an action film, there are so many memorable moments in the Coliseum as a romance. Okay, so you've got the the romance between Lucia and, and Maximus, but you also have this horrific, nightmarish, incestual love thing going on between Commodus and her. So it's hitting that. It just weaves together all of these different um, elements really, really well. Right. And it's just filled with so many great scenes. And this time, the scene that I took away was the scene at the party where they're kind of celebrating and Commodus is walking around where he's talking to, you know, Maximus. And he's like, I'm going to need some good people. I can count on you to be on my side. And it's clear where Commodus feels most at home or who he feels most at home with, the politicians. He doesn't have any other real friends in the room. Well, the movie does a great job of getting us aside with Maximus and against Commodus immediately. Maximus's first scene is leading his troops into battle fearlessly. And everyone loves him. Whereas the first scene we get with uh, Commodus is him being creepy with his sister. And I hope my dad is retiring so I can take over, essentially. When he sees that the battle is over, like if you watch, you clearly see that he sees the battle's over. Then he, he rides out on his horse and he's like, have I missed? Have I missed the battle? And they're like, you've missed the war. Save the bulls, honor Maximus. OK, so uh, Marcus, when he meets with Maximus later that evening, tells him, you are the son I should have had. So, like, that's a good scene. But I think the scene when Commodus shows up on the battlefield actually does a better job showing that he's the son he should have had. You know, Commodus is bumbling. He's saying things that are impertinent. And Maximus is helping Marcus onto his horse and fixing his stirrups. And he's caring for him. He clearly cares about him more than his own son does. And just a couple times, some dialogue was a little too on the nose for me because we also have these great scenes that display these points so much better. I also love the shot where Commodus is in the woods, like practicing his swordplay, which I get is to like let the audience know like, hey, he's he's kind of capable. But also like it almost seems like he's looking directly at Maximus like I can do it, too. (laughs) I think what is actually funny about that scene is we've actually seen Maximus's 
battle experience. And Mm -hmm. this five, ten seconds of Commodus playing swords with a couple of people who aren't going to hurt him, (laughs) like it's clearly very orchestrated. And it's like it's like Mm -hmm. something, okay, you've practiced that sequence of moves before. You you clearly Mm -hmm. have. And that's what you're good at. You can look flashy and you've got your shiny sword, your shirt off and in the winter. Maximus is bleeding and he just took down the Germanian army, the barbarians. And yeah, I think what it's trying to do is say he can handle a sword. I think it also shows that he's been training his whole life to be emperor. He's been working towards something, but he comes across as a feat. It's almost like the modern example of someone who went to a great school versus someone who has job experience. Right. Right. I think the scene when Commodus makes his way down to the floor of the Colosseum and he faces Maximus that first time and asks him to, you know, remove his helmet. And yeah, gra- you show your back to me, <laughs> which is like just weak sauce. Did anyone feel like, hey, uh, why don't you just pat him on the shoulder and be like, meanie? It just felt very, uh, slave. you know, you, you jerk. Um <laughs> Yeah, he does not have any power. Right. So Gracchus has told us that Rome is the mob. Control the mob and you control Rome. And this scene does an amazing job of showing us how Maximus has control of the mob. And he's basically done it, it, you know, in a couple days time. He's won a couple battles. He is more powerful than the emperor, at least in that moment on the floor of the Colosseum. He has more power. In that arena. In that arena. That's right. Correct. And while Commodus would like to just say, kill him, please, guards, he could have done that. But Maximus knows that Commodus is powerless in that moment because Mm -hmm. he will look like such a tyrant if he has Maximus killed. Well, yeah. Commodus's leadership style is trying to get the people to love him. Well, there's that line when uh, Thomas is like, I'm their loving father Mm -hmm. and I will let them embrace me. And he's like, oh, okay, cool. So you've embraced someone dying of plague. Um, There's also the scene that follows their exchange on the Colosseum floor. Lucia, she comes to see Maximus in in his holding cell or wherever they keep the gladiators when they're not fighting. And she proceeds to spell out and explain how, you know, I just watched you rise to a place of more power than the emperor. And again, a little on the nose for me, right after that gorgeous scene we had saying the same exact thing, you know, and not spelling it out for us like that. Uh, I just felt like a couple times the dialogue that followed the good scene wasn't necessary. It's okay for me because it's explaining it to Maximus, who's a little dim, but he doesn't understand the power he has. She has to explain it. She's the political one. He literally exclaims, like, what can I do? I'm a slave. Yeah. You don't get it. So it's okay in the context of the movie for me. You know, and historically, characters bent on vengeance don't have great self-control. And I feel like Maximus shows an immense amount of self-control in these few scenes. Yeah, characters at the center of vengeance plots tend to destroy themselves. Right. Maximus, I don't think vengeance is his only motivator. It's married to the loyalty he had for Marcus Aurelius. It's married to this desire to rail against the decadence of the games, Mm -hmm. uh, to restore Rome to its proper place. He has lots of motivations. And they're motivations that grow as the movie goes on. You can tell like right after he's picked up by the, the group that finds him and sells him to Proximo 
and he has his tattoo. It's like the SPQR. And you can tell in these few moments, you know, he's so overcome with grief. He is self-destructive. He's grinding his tattoo out of his arm. And his friend says, you know, is that a sign of your gods? Won't that upset them? And he kind of has a nod like, I I hope it does. Like he is wanting to incur this wrath, you know, like I have nothing else to live for. And I think over time, over the course of the movie, you know, he's reminded of his love for Marcus Aurelius and Marcus's devotion to Rome. And so these things are added on to his character, you know, as we proceed. Right. Yeah, it's a great point. The first scene when he's picked up by the slavers, it mirrors the ending shot of the movie where it's just his face over moving ground, death and rebirth. He's reborn when he loses his family and he's taken down to this new station in life. He's fallen right now. He's a slave. Uh, It's supposed to look like rebirth because the plot for the sequel I read was supposed to be that Maximus is reincarnated and saves the Christians from going into the Colosseum in Rome. That was a pitch for the sequel. That sounds so bad. Exactly. And that sounds aggressively bad. Yes. Right, but he's died to his old self, and he's got to find out who this new man is. I think that's sort of what the title of the movie is getting at, right? He's not Maximus something something anymore. He's Gladiator. So does the line, win the crowd and you'll win your freedom, does this apply to filmmakers as well? I think we like to think so. You know, I think that we like to think when you've made a couple of good movies, people are going to want to come and see what you're doing. But I think a lot of it, you have to have your own style. You have to have your own flair. Nowadays, it's more so people are attracted to genres of films rather than specific filmmakers unless you have like a Scorsese or a Tarantino I feel like we're less keen on filmmakers like I feel like the next thing the Russo brothers do you probably won't have a lot of people going to see it because like oh Russo brothers you know what I mean I would say just like the mob is fickle and gladiator yes that is the way the mob is still today Star Wars fans Yeah, exactly. Just because you have sales as a filmmaker, just because you have financial success, that is by no means an indicator of the amount of freedom or power you will have in the future. They can turn on you in a dime. Commodus had the power of the people for a time, and then they turned on him. Is Commodus Zack Snyder? (laughs) Yeah, that seems about right. And collectively, Hollywood said, sheathe your swords. (laughs) (laughs) To Joss Whedon. Oh, goodness. So why did this genre die? I think that people just didn't get it. When I think about Ben-Hur, there's such a rich, emotional, personal, beautiful story in there. And when I think about Gladiator, it's the same thing. And I think that people thought you could get away with making sword and sandal films that are just action movies. But I think around the same time that Gladiator came out, we started to get the Jason Bourne movies, which kind of changed the game for action films. All of a sudden, the fickle mob became more interested in up close and personal shaky cam stabbing a dude with a pen. I think that that kind of took over. Yeah, we're adrenaline junkies. I think another thing, too, there's definitely a fiscal risk to this genre of movie. Sword and Sandal movies are monumental in scope. I mean, they are just as big as the Roman Empire itself. So Mm -hmm. 
And it's not that we don't take big risks on movies anymore, but uh, we take risks on franchise movies. Sure bet risks. Very few studios. I mean, Disney like is one of the few names in town that's still able to take big risks because it has the means so it right. can lose hundreds of millions on a John Carter. And it doesn't really matter. So that's part of it because they're just so large and they're so ambitious. And I think something else, too, is, I mean, Brandon, you alluded to the fact that a lot of these were biblical epics. There is less source material to draw from that is compelling to like all of America. Like you made a biblical epic. There's just like a monolithic response. Yes, we want this in the 1960s. Right. That is not the case anymore. Right. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I think that's the main thing for me. Not a lot of groundbreaking new source material coming out for this genre. You know, something like sci-fi. Sci-fi is not going anywhere because Mm -hmm. literally the possibilities are endless. I think Sword and Sandal is very boxed in to a certain era, a certain time. It's cemented to that ancient Rome era. And you just can't compare them. Yeah, and just to your point of sci-fi has taken over this placeholder, I couldn't agree more. I think the Sword and Sandal films of the 60s made way for the Spielberg era, for the James Cameron era after that. I think the role of this kind of movie is movies that offer up spectacle. Yeah. Like these displays that just invoke awe and wonder in the audience. And part of the purpose of spectacle usually is to show off technological advancements happening in filmmaking. It looks cool. So we want to sit and watch that cool thing. And sci-fi has taken over that because the new technology is CG technology. So and again, like I was saying earlier, these sword and sandal films don't lend themselves to franchises. If they made Gladiator 2 tomorrow, no one would see it. So I think that if you can't franchise it, there's not really an interest in doing it. And I'm definitely an outlier with this data set because things like ancient Rome and Greek mythology, they're fascinating to me. Like I am absolutely intrigued with all of that. But where you lose me is when like it's set to heavy metal music and let's put a twist on it, you know, and all the reasons I like Greek mythology, you've taken that away and you've modernized it and you've tried to make it cool. And it's like Zeus and Apollo. It's already cool. It feels like the equivalent of like when a high school theater does. Here's our production of Macbeth. And it takes place in (laughs) urban Chicago in the middle of the drug war. I'm like, or you could just do Macbeth. Yeah, Shakespeare's pretty cool by himself, the way it was meant to be done. It's like Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet with Leo DiCaprio. (laughs) Exactly. No, thank you. (laughs) Yeah. What is another popular genre today that we think will die out soon? I'm going to say the zombie movie genre is something that we are going to be seeing exit stage left pretty soon. I think we have been satiated, not necessarily by movies, but by The Walking Dead. We have been satiated by this (laughs) single television show. And some of my favorite zombie movies or undead movies, if you will, for the purists, 28 Days Later, Zombieland, World War Z, I Am Legend. Maybe not everyone's favorites, but like those are movies I enjoyed. And Shaun of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead. Oh, yeah. There you go. Not my cup of tea, but plenty more out there. And to me, The Walking Dead came in and just was like, we are the only game in town now. 
and just really like set up shop and just hung around for a while, you know, and like, that's fine. A lot of people liked that show. I just think we're kind of, we're kind of done with it the same way. I feel like that blasted Edward Cullen and what's the, the Twilight 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 movies, you know, and it really did in the vampire genre. It was like in and out so fast. It was here one minute, gone the next. That's because those movies are terrible. You know, like whatever buzz arose from the books was totally just obliterated by the movies. You know, they were awful. Anyways, I digress. Can we rebut now or are we giving opening salvos? (laughs) Here's my thing. The zombie genre is like a zombie. It can die, but it will never be gone. It's going to rise again. I can think of a couple great zombie movies recently. Overlord was fantastic uh, last year. Uh, Train to Busan. There's tons of just fantastic zombie movies that have been coming out. Those are definitely indie movies. Uh, So that's where the genre has gone right now. It's taking a little bit of time out of the main blockbusters and it's it's doing that. And I think that's appropriate because, yeah, Walking Dead was frustrating. It was exhausting. We needed a break. Yeah. And there is that new Bill Murray one coming out. And I love Bill. I don't want to see it. It doesn't look good to me necessarily. But there is just a fascination, I think, like culturally with zombies in America. I don't know what it is, but it's like an American pastime. I don't think they're going to go away forever just for a time. Speaking of American pastimes, uh, the thing that I'd say is probably dead is uh, the Western. Mm. There have not been many Westerns recently. I think of like Hateful Eight in a way that's not really a Western, but it has that kind of setting. Buster Scruggs. Um, Buster Scruggs. That was good. I enjoyed that. But again, not really Western, like right. it's story set in the West, kind of it's little vignettes. The whole like tone uh, and feel of the Western movie is kind of dying. That macho Clint Eastwood thing. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, right. I can't like really the, name any of those. Like the Dollars trilogy. The uh, the Josie Wales. Right. Yeah, I completely agree, Mitch. But this is one that breaks my heart because the Western is very near and dear to my heart cowboys and like that's what i wanted to be when i grew up as a child like the movies that i would gravitate towards were like these cowboy movies and for a while the only show in town was 310 to yuma you know that came out and that was like the only thing we had seen or would see for like a decade then we saw Django unchained and then we got cowboys and aliens (laughs) but like this is one that yeah it's kind of boxed in by its era it's very specific to like that gold rush and like early american days not a lot of new groundbreaking source material there either it's tied to its ideology it's like uh the thrust behind a western to me is like freedom it's like Mm -hmm. wide open space it's the only law is a man with his gun It's that notion of just pure will and manifest destiny and you do what you are able to do. If you have the will to do it, you can do it. And I think that ideology is kind of we're less interested in it. Just to follow up real quick. Do you think cowboy movies and the Western genre are tied at all to like anti Native American ideology? It's not like inexorably linked, but it's there. And it is okay. enough to make some audiences uncomfortable. For OK, sure. yeah, because the whole notion of like cowboys and Indians, like to me, that goes hand in hand. They bring that up in Hell or High Water also. Uh, it's a great modern Gosh. Western. <laughs> right. Honestly, it's funny, too, because that I would consider a, like a Western Western Same. because Same. it's that tone of like 
it's just a man who is willing to take what is his in his mind, right? Like right. it's a bank robber. That's a Western, you know? Right. Even though it's like set in like a Wells Fargo right. uh, in Arizona, you know, like it's it's not exactly a Western, but it, it feels like one. Zach, what's your uh, what's your genre? I picked a genre that's popular with a very niche audience, uh, stop motion animated films. This is a genre that I love, like your Missing Links, your Kubo and the Two Strings, James the Giant Peach, stuff like that. I feel like there was an audience that really loved that, albeit it was a small audience. But, you know, I just think that as the years go by, we're just seeing less and less of it. And, you know, I get it. It's very expensive. It's very Mm -hmm. time consuming to Mm -hmm. do. But it's such a labor of love. Like Isle of Dogs wasn't great. But when I was watching it, I was like, my gosh, there's just so much detail. Like, this is just like watching art. It's so beautiful and so magnificent. And just I'm blown away by the filmmaker's craftsmanship. Whereas a lot of people just aren't interested in seeing that. And like Missing Link was a box office failure. And I'm not saying that I don't get it, but I am saying that it bums me up. That was actually going to be my next question. Is this something that is extremely laborious to produce? To me, it's it would have to be like a a studio. Like there's just probably no money in something like that. You know, it's probably hard to get a studio to fund your project when no one sees those movies, you know, which, you know, you're saying is very disappointing, though, like that. That's, you know, you got to do what the money is and you got to make the movie that everyone wants to see. I'm a little torn on this, actually, because. On one hand, I think Zach actually picked the one that is the most likely to go because I think our cultural appetites can change. Like there hadn't been a sword and sandal movie in 20 years and then Gladiator shows up and we like it. So things can come back. But money talks. And if a certain method of creating a movie is too expensive for a studio to continue doing, just like Disney stopped doing real hand-drawn like animation a while that back. Also, that one bums me out too. Yeah. Yeah. It is on its way out uh, right. just because it's a money thing. Mm-hmm. I get it on that side, but then I think of like Into the Spider-Verse, which recently just came out. I do think that's an outlier and not indicative of where the market is going. Right. Um, that's not a stop motion, but I'm right, just saying right. it does seem to demonstrate there are some filmmakers who are willing to do a much more laborious, expensive method of animation. Right, right. So I think there are always going to be directors and studios who are willing to do that labor of love if they think they're going to get the return. Spider-Man is unique, though. Right. Gosh, like Into right. the Spider-Verse is super unique. Into the Spider-Verse yeah. blew my mind. As a graphic designer, yeah. seeing something like that, something so visually just mesmerizing, this needs to be the future. Right. You can't Which, even capture everything that's happening. Right. Like I've watched that movie like five times and every right. time I see it differently. Right. And and Mitch, do you remember when we saw Kubo and the Two Strings and there was that shot mid credits where they just showed the set that they built? Uh, vaguely. Yeah. Like they did. But they just show they built this like massive, humongous set to like shoot everything on and everything has to be moving and everything has to be going. And it's just so much. And again, these, you know, Isle of Dogs didn't make any money. Kubo and the Two Strings didn't make very much money. You know, the, these movies are just not making money. And, you know, I don't think we're going to see him. Yeah. You guys good? Yep. I'm sad now. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Why do some genres die? 
they don't make enough money, the market is oversaturated. There are plenty of reasons. But it all boils down to one question. Are you not entertained? When a genre no longer feels fresh, fun, or fulfilling, we tend to leave that genre in the dust. Why is Gladiator the exception? Well, you have a wealth of characters, a compelling story, good dialogue, well-directed action, and so much more. If you deliver a high-quality film that gets people talking, you'll see full theaters and entertained audiences. So the first thing that sticks out to me about Gladiator is it really makes me reflect on why I'm so entranced by blood and action and sensation. And I don't want to be glib, but what's really so different about being entertained by watching leather-clad men slaughter each other in the gladiatorial pits in person versus in a movie? I don't know. I think the movie gets some bonus points for its meta-commentary that forces the audience to think about if we're the mob uh, who kind of craves action and special effects and combat. And in this age of like Michael Bay movies, which are all about stuffing as much information into every frame as possible and visual impressiveness, uh, whether or not the story demands it, action movies have kind of felt like empty calories to me for a long time. Movies like Gladiator are the full course. They're substantive and I am very entertained. When I ask the question, are you not entertained? It really comes down to three things for me. A character I can root for, a story that connects with me, and thrilling sequences that really get my heart pounding. And for me, Gladiator has the trifecta. I mean, you have Maximus, a courageous leader and warrior, one step away from the most powerful position in Rome. Exiled, widowed, betrayed, stripped of everything he loves. Your classic belly of the whale story. And then we get his rebirth and rise, fueled by vengeance, ultimately costing him his life, all peppered with exciting sword fights in the most famous arena of all time. What's not to love? But ultimately, Gladiator did, for the sword and sandal genre, what seemed like an impossible task. It brought it back to life. Was I entertained? Absolutely. Well, I'm just glad my terrible Russell Crowe impression didn't scare you all off. Thank you for listening to our episode on Gladiator and the rebirth of the sword and sandal genre. As the summer movie season is revving up, we hope you have a fabulous time at the movies. What are you looking forward to? We would love for you to let us know. You can leave us a comment on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can be found at the Is It Really Podcast. And don't forget, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're up to it, please give us a rating and a review. We would really appreciate it. And we'll see you next time. Bye.